You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. Continues to be a, a gift and blessing to be gathered together. I'm grateful to see your faces. Grateful for those of you who are joining us via our live stream as well. Um, just even this weekend, celebrating the, the gift it is to live in a nation where we have the freedom to gather, the freedom uh, to worship the way that we do, and rejoicing in those good gifts from God. Um, Jordan mentioned this. We're starting a new series today. We're going to be in John chapter 17, Gospel of John chapter 17. Uh, if you're using one of those Bibles that uh, are under the seats in front of you, uh, page 903 is where you will um, find, today's, find today's text. Sometime in the mid to late 2nd century AD, an unknown disciple of the apostles, we don't know this man's name, we don't really know that much about him, just that he was a disciple of the original apostles, penned a letter to a Roman man named Diognetus. Uh, It's thought that Diognetus was uh, one of the tutors of the emperor Marcus Aurelius. And as Christianity was still an emerging movement in the Roman Empire at this point in time when this was written, Listen to the picture that this letter paints of the way that Christians engaged with the world and engaged with people around them. This unknown disciple writes this. Every foreign land is to them, meaning Christians, as their native country. Every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. As we kick off this new series this morning, I'm not sure that I've ever encountered a more succinct, compelling summary of the Bible's calling and invitation and opportunity to faithful presence than this. And so this morning, let that line, let those lines, that part of that letter to Diognetus remind you, for those of you who are Christians, for for those of you who put your faith in Jesus, let that remind you of your heritage. Since the earliest days of the church, Jesus' saving and transforming work has formed his followers into this, into this. And before, in a series like this, before we find ourselves decrying the difficulty it is to be a Christian in a post-Christian world, because it is difficult, before we lament how broken and how backward things are, even before we begin to wrestle with what engagement with our culture should look like, this morning we get to thank God because in Jesus Christ he has purified a people for himself who are capable of actually living like this. That he has established the church, that he has bought the church with his own blood so that until the day he comes again, there will always be a faithfully present people in this world. 
Someday, by the grace of God, may everything written in that letter to Diognetus also be said about you and also be said about me. The series that we're beginning today is called Faithful Presence, The Way of Christ in a Post-Christian World. This term, faithful presence, is not one that you, you find in Scripture, but the concept of it is everywhere in Scripture, both in the descriptions and the prescriptions. The descriptions about how Christians and how followers of Jesus and people of God live their lives, as well as the prescriptions, uh, what we're to do, what we're called to be in the world. Even more, and we'll talk about this in a little while, faithful presence is founded upon and modeled after the faithful presence of God himself. It's how God interacts with the world that he made. One passage which highlights this is Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And you heard Jordan read a little bit of it earlier. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus prays. And he prays for himself. And then he prays for his disciples. And then he prays for those who will eventually come to believe in and follow him through the witness of their disciples. Uh, Before I read this text for us, let me pray uh, for us in our time this morning. So let me pray. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. In these moments, these precious moments together this morning, soften our minds that we may discern your truth, shape our wills, that we may desire your ways. We pray all this through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our God. Amen. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is John chapter 17, beginning in verse 6. These are the words of Jesus as he prays to God the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have has the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is God's word. Three things uh, that we will consider today in light of John 17: the basis for faithful presence, the tension of faithful presence. And then the outcome of faithful presence. The basis of it, the, out, the tension of it, and the outcome of it. So first, the basis. The basis for faithful presence. Um, many of you have grown up in the church or been around the church for at least some period of time in your life. And if so, you're probably familiar with the phrase, with the idea that Christians are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Now that phrase, the literal line of that phrase is not directly from a verse in Scripture, but it's drawn from verses 14 through 16 right here in John chapter 17. Jesus' followers are not of the world, but by the prayers of Jesus, by the design of God himself, we remain in the world. And fleshing that out with the rest of what we see in this passage in John 17, uh, we see that this requires both faithfulness and presence. By faithfulness, Jesus means a distinct identity and ethic. A distinct identity and ethic. Jesus' followers are those, verse 6, who come out of the world. Who in verses 14 and 16 are not of the world, just as Jesus himself, his own identity as he was in the world, is not of the world. When we trust in Jesus, when we come to trust in his finished work, his life and his death and his resurrection, we are united with him. We become sons and daughters of God. We are new creations. We are born again. There's a second birth. Our old hearts of stone are, are ripped out and replaced with soft hearts of flesh that can know and follow and submit to and believe in him. There's a fundamental change of identity that takes place. In verse 9, Jesus says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Now that's an incredible statement there in verse 9, because it clearly defines an us and a them. It clearly lays out a distinction between the world and those who formerly were of the world, but have now been delivered out of the world and now belong to Jesus. And this distinction, as we go on to read, is not just one of identity, but also ethic. Jesus goes on to pray in verses 17 and 18 that his followers will be sanctified in truth. Sanctified in truth. Uh, so just as, both Jesus, as Jesus is both Savior and Lord, sanctification is both a matter of identity and ethic. Uh, when we trust in Jesus, we are sanctified. There's a positional kind of change in our identity that takes place. We are now, we can, it can even be spoken of so powerfully that it's like past tense, it's already done and happened. We are cleansed, we are washed, we are purified, consecrated, set-apart people. But there's also a progressive calling to a new way of life, to live out that new identity, a new ethic and a new morality following in the way of Christ, following the commands 
that Jesus, our King, our Lord, has given us. This is a distinction that must always be carried with humility. With humility. And even here in the context of John 17, the distinction is not only for the sake of Jesus' followers, it's also for the sake of others. Jesus prays that others will come to believe in him through the witness, through the words of his followers. And so even as we sang about together just a few minutes ago, Christians are those who never get over the mercy we have received. We are those who, looking at any expression of sin and rebellion and brokenness and folly that exists around us in the world in which we live, we look at that and we immediately remember in the words of the Apostle Paul, such were some of us. Such were some of you. Christians are those who desperately long, though there is a distinction, who desperately long for every them to become us. And we lay down our lives so that the they will become we and us. So any distinction that leads to distancing ourselves from people, any distinction that leads to arrogance, misses the purpose of the distinction. But then this is critical. This is critical. It's not humility to eradicate the distinction. It's not humility to eradicate the distinction. That's actually a false humility. It's to downplay the most fundamental need of every man and woman and child, which is to experience their own deliverance out of the world and to belong to Jesus, to be united with him, to be reconciled to God. The distinction, the faithfulness of Christians in both identity and ethic is meant to embody and display that there is something more, that there is something better, that there's something necessary that can only come by the hand of God, by the act of God. That there is a better way to follow, a better way to live. Because we want others to know this and to follow Jesus themselves, faithfulness, therefore, is always married to presence. Presence. A distinct identity and ethic but cultural and relational proximity, nearness, immersion, presence. In verse 11, Jesus says, they, meaning my disciples, my people, are in the world. He's saying, I'm now coming to you, Father. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to ascend back to you. But they are still there. They are still going to be in the world. Verse 15, he prays, actually, please don't take them out of the world. Just preserve them while they're in it. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them from all evil while they're there. And then verse 18, as you sent me, Jesus says to the Father, into the world, so have I sent them into the world. We, we looked at this a little bit last week as we wrapped up our series on the mission of God's people, that this sending, when we read about it in Scripture, it's not just a statement of fact. It's not just a description of, of a sending that the Father did to the Son and the Son to the Spirit and the Spirit to the church. It actually here captures the character and quality of how sending is meant to happen and does happen in the kingdom of God. The Father sent we read in John 3 last week, not to, not to condemn the world, but to save it. Because the world already, rebelling against God, stands condemned. Jesus comes to save. So when he says here in verse 18, and then we'll say again in a couple chapters in John chapter 21, as the Father sent me, so am I sending you. That means that our calling as his people is to immerse ourselves among the condemned, to embed ourselves within what sin is, has corrupted and destroyed and decayed and broken. Jesus' followers are those, in other words, who run headfirst into the darkness. We see the darkness and we run into it. We run into it to bring light to those who are at present without hope and without God in the world. 
In fact, this whole idea of faithful presence, this whole concept of being in the world but not of the world, is founded on God's own character and his own engagement with his creation. In this prayer, and maybe you heard it as we read it, Jesus uses two titles to address God. In verse 11, he calls him Holy Father. And then in verse 25, he calls him Righteous Father. Each of these titles proclaims the faithful presence of God. God is holy. He is completely other and perfect in his holiness. He is transcendent over all that he has made. And he is faithful in that. He is untainted by sin in that. And at the very same time, he's not just holy, he's holy father. Not distant, but imminent, relational, present with all of his creation, but especially present with his people. He is present to us as a loving father. Righteous father really is getting at the same kind of idea, uh, where holiness is more about God's identity Righteousness is more about God's own ethic, his own morality. His righteousness is what flows from his holiness. It's the outward expression of it. Because he is holy, he only will ever do what is right. He can do no other. But again, not in an impersonal and distant and removed kind of way. He is the righteous father. Likewise, then, God the Son, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. He did not remain distant in the perfection and the holiness of the presence of the Father, but he immersed himself into the sinfulness and the corruption of the world. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin himself. Jesus is the epitome of faithful presence. He is the ever-faithful one. He is the ever-present one. Jesus is the faithfully present one. So that's the basis. That's the basis for faithful presence. Second, let's consider the tension of faithful presence. The Christian life might be described as a tennis racket. The sweet spot of a tennis racket, the sweet spot in the middle, is created by all of these tension points around the outside. And you maybe heard some of the tensions that were described there in that letter to Diognetus at the beginning of our time. Christians are in the flesh We embrace the material, physical world. The body is good. It's been created by God. We don't deny the the goodness of the physical. And yet, we do not live after the flesh. We're not mastered by the demands and the desires of the flesh. We obey laws. We follow authority where it's been prescribed by God. But we surpass the laws by our lives. We go past the letter of the law. Christians are dishonored but also glorified. Or or like we considered last week, Christians walk walk out their life, their faith, in both truth and in love. Now, for Jesus, there's no tension in this. There's no tension. He's the perfectly faithful one. He's the perfectly present one. He doesn't have to wrestle with what the expression of that should look like in any given moment. For us, however, sinful men and women that we are limited in our understanding as we are, prone to wonder as we are, there are endless opportunities to pursue faithfulness without presence or presence without faithfulness. And so we hold these things, we must hold these things together and in tension. We have to have enough of a healthy distrust of ourselves to not assume that we can perfectly resolve that tension and figure it out and then like set life on autopilot from here on out. Now that doesn't stop some, from, some people from attempting to, to resolve it and do that. 
And over the past 2,000 years, different groups of Christians have tried. Uh, There are a couple books that have traced some historical examples of this. Uh, Richard Niebuhr, some decades back, wrote a book called Christ and Culture. And in that, he summarizes a few different approaches that the church and different pockets of Christians have taken over the centuries. There's Christ against culture or Christ above culture. And these approaches clearly value faithfulness. They clearly value that distinct identity, but they pursue that in an antagonistic or in a really removed, distant kind of manner. On the other hand, there's what Niebuhr calls the Christ of culture approach, where there's a lot of presence, but almost no distinction upheld. And Jesus, in these kinds of approaches, ceases to be God in the flesh, the God we read about in the Old and New Testaments. He ceases to be Savior and Lord, and he becomes instead remade into a figurehead for whatever culture wants him to be in any given moment. James Davison Hunter, another author, in his book, To Change the World, he talks about three postures that Christians are prone to assume as they relate to any given society, to any given culture. Uh, One is relevance to some Christians pursue relevance to culture. They, they sacrifice in doing so. They sacrifice faithfulness for the sake of presence, for, a sake of, uh, for, for the sake of a seat at the table. There's also purity from, where you sacrifice presence for the sake of faithfulness. And because you live and work in central Pennsylvania, you're familiar with some of the extreme expressions of that in, in Amish and Mennonite communities, where they have, have removed themselves in substantial or maybe completely from society so that they can pursue purity from uh, the world, but not really be present in it. And then there's a third one that, that Hunter calls defensive against, which does seek to hold faithfulness and presence in tension to a degree. But think about this, by defining itself primarily by what it's against rather than what it's for, becomes itself dependent on culture for its own identity while it's seeking to hold culture at arm's length. And so it's neither distinct enough because it needs culture to have something to base its own identity off of, but it's, but it's not willing to go near. It's neither distinct nor near enough to be faithfully present. Now, we'll unpack all of these things more as this series unfolds. This morning, I just want to introduce you to this tension of faithful presence. How do we remain in the world but not become defined by, identified with the world? How do we hold this tension so as to live in the sweet spot of the racket, so to speak? It will involve receiving and affirming some things that we see playing out in the world around us. What are we for? Why is the way of Christ truly the best way to live? What can we see playing out in the world that is evidence of the common grace and the presence of God? It will also involve us rejecting some things. With genuine humility, Christians maintain their distinct identity and ethic so as to implore people to come out of their folly, to come out of their futility. We don't eradicate the distinction, so we have to reject some things. And it will involve redeeming some things. Not presuming ourselves to be the Redeemer in the way that only Jesus Christ can be and is, but then stepping into his redemptive and reconciling work to to fulfill the command that he has given his people in the Sermon on the Mount to be salt and light, to be salt that preserves and stops the decay caused by sin, to be the light that runs headfirst into the darkness and then pushes back what's dark. What do we receive? What do we reject? What do we redeem? Those are not easy questions, and if you've wrestled with them, then you already know that. 
but the tension that they create becomes the framework through which we pursue faithful presence, through which faithful presence is found. So that's the basis, and that's the tension. Third, let's consider the outcome, the outcome of faithful presence. In this prayer in John 17, Jesus points out, and then he even asks God for some specific results that will flow from living this way. And it's important for us to start a series like this, thinking about the outcome, really for two reasons. Uh, One, it'll help us calibrate our expectations. Like if we're going to step into and pursue faithful presence in the world, what should we expect that will feel like, look like, sound like, smell like? What will, what will it be, mean to actually pursue this? And then second, it will also give us some good litmus tests to, to evaluate and to consider our own lives and say, are we actually doing this? Are we seeing some of the results and fruit of this? Or maybe have we instead fallen off a ditch into either side of the road of being faithful but not present or present but not faithful? One of the outcomes, and the one that by far caught me most off guard this week, verse 13, joy. Joy. Jesus prays that they, my disciples, might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. A few decades back, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. He went on to say, unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation of the Christian faith. Now, there is a, a cheap, superficial substitute for joy that is present in some Christian circles. We can fall prey to it very easily. Where we think we're supposed to pretend that we're happy all the time. Where we refuse to engage with the deep hurt and the deep sorrow and the deep heaviness that exists in the world because sin has broken the world. So not that. That's not what Martin Lloyd-Jones is talking about. It's not what Jesus is talking about. But think about this. Neither are despondency and despair Christian virtues. And actually, when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, the the work that the Spirit of God does in the hearts of the followers of Christ, the second one on the list of nine is joy. Love, joy. It's the fruit of the Spirit. As someone who struggles to be joyful, as someone whose life and whose ministry is not first and foremost characterized by joy, uh, this is incredibly convicting and incredibly hopeful at the very same time. And I was stirred up in both of those things, the conviction of it and the hope of it, this past week. When we think about the current state of our society, when we step back and think about where is culture at right now in the 21st century, and we think about what faithful presence is going to entail, what is it going to cost to be faithfully present as God's people here and now? If you're like me, the first thought that comes to your mind is not, wow, the joy of that. I'm thinking much more about the cost. I'm thinking much more about the sacrifices that that's going to entail. But here, in verse 13, here it is. Here it is. And so can we, church, together, stop only seeing the weight and only seeing the burden of faithful presence? Can we in this series learn to see the opportunity of it? Can we learn to rejoice in what we have in Jesus, that we have the longing and the desire of every human heart, that the promises of God have found their yes and amen in Jesus? Can we find the joy of that? I love what Eugene Peterson wrote in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He wrote this, Christians are not fatigued outcasts who carry righteousness as a burden in a world where the wicked flourish. Christians are people who sing, and he quotes the psalmist here, Oh, blessed be God, he didn't abandon me defenseless. He didn't abandon us 
defenseless. We're not fatigued outcasts in the world. We, can, we have the presence of God because of the work of Christ with us, and we have joy because of that. Now, joy is not the only outcome. The next verse, verse 14, hatred is an outcome. Just as the world hated Jesus, the world will hate his followers. This is why pursuing relevance in and of itself to the world is an exercise in futility. You might be able to, to go some of the way to where they want you to be. You will never be able to go far enough. If the world will hate Jesus' followers, that also means it will certainly misunderstand, misrepresent, disrespect, fail to appreciate them. And no doubt, you and I can pour fuel on that fire with our wrong approaches, with our hypocrisy, with whatever. We can make ourselves our, our own anger. We can make our own arrogance the issue rather than, as Jesus is pointing out here, letting the issue really be God's word that fuels this hatred. But that being said, if ever someone navigated this perfectly, completely faithful, completely present, it was Jesus. And the world still hated him when he navigated it perfectly. And so we are fools to think that we are going to do better than Jesus. We will never be more faithfully present than Jesus was faithfully present when he walked on this earth. And if we go far enough to be esteemed, to be appreciated in all circles at all times, that will most certainly be at the expense of truth, at the expense of faithfulness. Let me just speed through a couple more. As we've already considered, we will be, verse 17, sanctified in truth. So we can be faithfully present in the first place because we have been sanctified through the work of Christ. But also, God will use our pursuit of faithful presence to do even more of that sanctifying work in us. And for any of you who have attempted to live this way, who have attempted to be faithfully present, you've already experienced and know this to some degree. Because as you do this, as you navigate that tension, your fear and your pride and your idols, the things you devote yourself to that are not God, will be exposed so that God might, through that, continue his pruning and purifying work in you. And then furthermore, faithful presence leads to the outcome of union and unity. All the repetition of the words one and oneness and in, especially in verses 21 through 26, First and foremost, there's union with Jesus. And think about this. This is an incredible thought that Jesus includes here in John 17. Jesus' followers are brought into the oneness that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have themselves experienced together since, as Jesus puts it, before the foundation of the world. Let us never lose our astonishment and our awe that by the work of Christ, you are united with God the Holy Trinity in that oneness. You are brought into that. And then, as direct consequences of that, Jesus goes on to say, we're united with Christ in order that we may perfectly become one with one another, in order that the world may know that God sent Jesus and loved his followers even as he loved Jesus. We're united with Christ so that we can be united with one another so that the world will know. Now, by this metric alone, as Christians in the 21st century, and even zooming into the decade that 2020 has already been, we are a complete and utter disaster in this. We're a complete disaster in this. We view, most of us tend to view unity with other Christians as a luxury add-on. Maybe we'll get that if we get all this other stuff established first. In reality, in truth, this is part of our identity. 
This is fundamental to who Christians are. They're united with Christ and united with each other. Now, just as with joy, there is a cheap and counterfeit substitute to unity, one that abandons truth, one that avoids conflict for the sake of some kind of superficial peace, one that mistakes tolerance for unity when tolerance is really only the beginning of disunity. That's not the kind of oneness that Jesus is talking about here. At the same time, when it comes to faithful presence, and I've been this, and maybe you have too, or certainly you will know some people that you love and are close to that have experienced this, a lot of us Christians suffer from what I call an Elijah complex. Now, Elijah is this prophet in the Old Testament who's known for his epic battles with the prophets of Baal and going head-to-head with Ahab and Jezebel, wicked king and queen of Israel. But there's a moment in his life in 1 Kings 19 where he is just weighed down by the cost of faithfulness in a faithless kingdom. And he, in this moment, laments. He cries out to God. He says, God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only faithful one still around. There's me and there's nobody else. No one else is speaking up for you. No one else is faithful. And God says in response, actually, there's 7,000 others. There's not just seven, 70, 700. There are 7,000 others that are faithful like you are. So let's cement this in our minds as we begin this series. We are not the only faithful church in this region or state or nation or whatever geographic territory you want to use there. We are not the only ones, not even close. And, and you and your micro-tribe are not the only faithful Christians. Can we, can we acknowledge that this morning? You and your micro-tribe, whoever you identify with, whatever podcasts and books you listen to, are not the only faithful ones. When we start to think that's the case, we will inevitably become someone who divides and distances ourselves in the name of faithfulness when really what that is is pride and self-righteousness and self-pity like Elijah had for himself. Real faithfulness, real faithful presence, John 17, is union with Christ so that we might be united with one another so that the world might know the love of the Father for Jesus and for his people. We're just getting to scratch the surface this morning. I hope John 17 has whet your appetite for where we'll get to go in the weeks ahead. What is faithful presence? It is living out our distinct identity and ethic as Jesus' followers, lovingly embedded in this corrupted and broken and sinful world that we inhabit. It is stepping into the life and the story of God, our Holy Father, as Jesus calls him and his only begotten beloved son, Jesus Christ, who in perfect faithfulness did not remain distant, but entered in and drew near. As Jesus' faithful presence has laid hold of our salvation, may we become his faithfully present people in this time and place. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus. We praise you, that by the blood of Christ, by his finished work, you have established a people for, your, for yourself who are capable and who are called to be faithfully present in the world. That the world will never lack a witness of faithful presence because you've done that. We confess our struggle and our shortcomings in it. We confess the, the pull to be faithful while remaining distant. We confess the pull to be present while sacrificing faithfulness. We desperately need your grace, and we need the power of your Holy Spirit in us to guide us moment by moment into what faithful presence looks like. We pray that we would do that together in these weeks to come over this series. We pray that we would do that always. 
And we ask that what we do and how we live and the way that we love would ever become a worthy response to the salvation that your faithful presence has purchased for us. We pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.